Section 13 of Charles II by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 2 Scotland, Exile, and Restoration, Part 6. At length, for a brief interval, hope flared high. Charles was playing tennis when Sir Stephen Fox called him from his game with great news. It had pleased God, out of his infinite goodness, to do that which he would not allow any man the honour of doing. The powerful devil was dead. For a moment all was exaltation, delirious, inarticulate. German wrote from France the assurance that the engagements with the dead monster expire suddenly. Culpepper reported that Amsterdam was mad with joy. No man is at leisure to buy or sell. The young fry dance in the streets at noonday. The devil is dead is the language at every turn. But German was not in the councils of Mazarin, nor the young fry in those of John de Witt. Lockhart kept the cardinal firm, although Dick Cromwell sate like an ape on horseback, while in a few days Culpepper wrote again that the states now bent all their thoughts on renewing the treaty with the new protector, hoping to edge in that which they could never obtain from the crafty fox his father, the Maritime Treaty. Charles's wiser friends kept their heads. Hyde's voice was heard at once. I hope the king will not be prevailed upon to do any sudden thing. We shall have advantages offered if we do not hurt ourselves with projects. Meanwhile, all friends should get into Parliament as soon as possible. Wait till they quarrel, added Culpepper, and then the weaker part will be glad of our help. Culpepper's very able letter contained one fruitful piece of advice, which could not, however, be fully acted upon for nearly another year. The key of the situation was held by George Monk, who had the army of occupation in Scotland at his disposal. The aim should therefore be to satisfy him that his personal interests would be best secured by a restoration, and his own way of declaring himself should be accepted without demur. The way to deal with him is by some fit person, to show him plainly and to give him all imaginable security for it, that he shall better find all his ends, those of honour, power, profit, safety, with the king than in any other way he can take. Neither are we to boggle at any way he shall propose in declaring himself, let it at the first be presbytery, be king in parliament, be a third party, or what he will. So it oppose the present power, it will at last do the king's business, and after a little time he will and must alone fall into the track we would have him to go in. When he is engaged, past a retreat, he will want you as much as you will want him, and you may mould him into what form you please. To prepare the ground, to be ready to take advantage of the recriminations and quarrels already breaking out between Presbyterians and Republicans in England, to prevent all divisions among themselves, to frustrate especially the intrigues of Father Talbot and his like, who were endeavouring to set up the interest of James against that of the king, and to conciliate every possible source of support. This was the course laid down by Hyde, who now as Lord Chancellor had more authority than ever. An obvious and a necessary step was to reassure all good Protestants, especially Presbyterians, 
of the king's firmness to the faith if his scottish experience had sickened him of all religion it had at least taught him the value of asseveration and on november seventh letters were dispatched to the ministers of the english presbyterian churches in holland expressing his undying zeal for the protestant religion the propagation whereof we shall endeavour with our utmost power in the beginning of march sixteen fifty nine the levellers renewed their offer to help charles to regain his crown upon conditions which meant nothing less than pure republicanism veiled under monarchical phrases but hyde kept steadily before him the idea of a restoration subject to such conditions only as did not imply a nerveless monarchy or a new church for this he trusted to time meanwhile he pleaded incessantly with mordaunt broderick and other eager friends in england for the avoidance of hasty action they were pressing for a restoration on any terms confident that the restrictions imposed will be suddenly taken off by your majesty's sweetness of disposition and temper but three kingdoms hyde felt are too considerable to venture upon a slight account against all proposals to rise in arms he protested most earnestly and especially warned his friends against buckingham then in england who will be glad to merit by setting any ridiculous plot on foot he would not if he could help it allow charles to send a line to his friends without his endorsement it was he who held the pen when the king authorized his agents in england to make what promises they thought fitting and engaged to make them good but not to such as were possessed of church or crown lands or the lands taken from our faithful subjects or when charles wrote directly saying i do avoid making large promises to you because i am told it would not be acceptable and that you are swayed by other thoughts yet cannot but tell you you shall never repent any offices you shall do me of all promises actually made hyde kept a careful register and they were scrupulously redeemed by may sixteen fifty nine the outlook had again altered on the fourth charles heard that his adherents were ready to rise in the midlands and in the north and on the same day the army restored the long parliament and dismissed richard cromwell chaos he was told is a perfection in comparison with our order and government the parties are like floating islands sometimes joining and appearing like a continent when the next flood or ebb separates them that it can hardly be known where they are next in the beginning of june all was in good posture and hyde was urging rather than restraining while charles adjured from england that he must hazard his own person if success were to be hoped for promised that in case of a rising he would come with two thousand men at least france and spain he added would doubtless help him since a temporary cessation of arms had been arranged charles might promise two thousand men but he could not possibly move while ostend was closely watched for it was the only port where he had ships but the man who next to monk held the issues in his hands was admiral montague a perfect hater of the men who now rule though devoted to old knoll his countryman montague was in command of the fleet at the sound and it was intimated to him 
that if he would bring his vessels to embark charles's regiments there would be practically no limit to what he might ask and receive without waiting for the result of these advances charles wrote to england that he and james would set out on july twenty first in the hope that his friends would be ready for him he expressed his anxiety or hides that the english nation may be the means of removing the misery without owning those great obligations to foreign princes which they seldom yield without some advantage to their own interest and impairing their neighbours in a few days however he received a letter from mordant and titus warning him that arrangements were still unmatured and imploring him not to expose his person to danger at the beginning of august it was understood that all was at length in train the proposals were that massey should seize gloucester lord willoughby lynn and sir g booth chester while plymouth bristol shrewsbury and exeter were to be attacked montague was to bring the fleet from the sound gloucester was then to sail from ostend for the east coast with the irish regiments turin had promised to convey james with his troops and artillery from boulogne on the fifteenth charles had started for calais thence he went in disguise to st malo in brittany and was about to sail on september eighth when ormond overtook him with news of disaster the whole scheme of the insurrection had been betrayed to the government by willis and when booth rose in cheshire he was easily crushed montague who had come to the mouth of the thames had fortunately not yet declared himself and by desperate lying managed to escape death or imprisonment on the twenty sixth charles was told that he must look for no more risings of his friends and the bitter truth was pressed upon him that the spaniard uses you the french betray you the dutch are already declared against you one chance remained mazarin and don luis de haro had met at fonterabia in spain after the cessation of arms to discuss the future settlement and thither charles went in the hope that he might induce the two crowns to help him and in particular that the army of conde which with his own would make sixteen thousand men would be put at his disposal he met with nothing but disappointment mazarin was resolved not to break with the existing government in england so long as there was a possibility of renewed war with spain spain was still less in a condition to entangle herself and her interest in charles was limited to the desire for the restoration of jamaica which had been captured by the english and of dunkirk which had fallen to them after the battle of the dunes in his suggestions to mazarin charles included a proposal of marriage with his niece hortense but the cardinal gracefully declined the honour by insisting that as long as a cousin of his own remained unmarried he must not stoop to think of a simple demoiselle the hope of securing conde's forces vanished through the vigilance of lockhart who obtained a clause in the treaty for their immediate disbandment nothing was left for charles but to return as cheerily as he could to brussels with next winter once more upon his tongue on the journey he went out of his way to colomb to visit the queen and mother and son were reconciled at this visit also was formed that romantic attachment to his younger sister which will deserve much notice later no sooner had he left than there began the series of letters for dear dear sister 
which with her proudly affectionate answers can scarcely now be read without emotion it was the one untainted spot in charles's life at fontarabia charles acquired distinct reputation he has behaved himself here as if he had been bred more years in spain than in france wrote o'neill the french were equally impressed and all his counsel could not deliver his business better nor add a syllable to what he says even from hyde fell unaccustomed words of praise his dexterity and composedness hath removed the fatal misfortune of not being believed for till the king be thought to understand his own business and be able to conduct it all our striving is against the stream and towards that good reputation an opinion of his industry is as necessary as of his conception the usual hot report that he had turned papist was of course spread with circumstantial evidence after his spanish visit and your master is utterly ruined if this be true wrote mordant there were doubtless suspicious circumstances he had gone to mass and bristol had been converted the fact that charles had at once dismissed bristol from his council did not affect the conclusions which were drawn it is worth while to turn aside from the narrative for a few moments to notice one delightful passage from hyde which puts in the strongest light charles's appreciation of his own limitations and his dislike of clumsy flattery a certain dr creighton had sent to hyde for criticism the proof-sheets of a book upon the council of florence with an epistle dedicatory to charles couched in the high-flown language of a courtly divine hyde thus replied in the next place you must remember that though our master hath taken great pains and with excellent success in the modern languages yet in latin he is too unskilful by the inexcusable negligence of those who should have laid that foundation so that when this book shall be presented to him there is no question but that he will command that the epistle dedicatory be translated for him into english and i must tell you that as there is no prince this day in europe who deserves greater commendation so his modesty is so predominant over all his virtues that no gentleman is sooner out of countenance with being over-commended i have not in my lifetime seen him more displeased and more angry than in some few encounters of that kind and i dare swear he will be put to many blushes upon the reading of your epistle and wish some expressions were away you have not nor you cannot say too much of the candour of his mind of the justice and gentleness of his nature of his affection and zeal to the protestant religion but i beseech you allay those other expressions which he will believe belong not to him which relate to his conduct and perfection in war and to such extraordinary ability as can be got only by experience above all i beseech you review and allay those two hyperbolical expressions of the modesty and severity of our court where god knows the fabricii nor the camilli can be found and these encomiums may possibly call on some reproaches upon us which we do as little deserve it is easy to imagine the contemptuous odds fishy as a fool with which charles would have read the praise of his latin his military skill and the chastity of his court 
nothing remained for the exiles but to fall back upon their accustomed diet of patience they were now in worse plight than ever the king's clothes were threadbare and he was obliged to dismiss his servants and to pawn his remaining plate monk's brother who had been sent on the mission to that impenetrable man had returned with no word comfortable or adverse we know now that he had heard charles's communication read to him although he would not take it into his hands that a letter from him to the speaker had been drafted in which he demanded a free parliament that on receipt of the news of booth's defeat this letter had been torn up and that all who knew of it had been sworn to secrecy it was not until october that monk showed his hand hearing of the expulsion of the rump by lambert and grasping the fact that the traditional feeling of the average englishman was the exact opposite of the army doctrine he made scotland secure and having received from the former committee of safety a commission to command all the forces in england and scotland prepared to march against lambert End of section thirteen